add my welcome to you all this day. It's, it is a... Man, there was a couple of those in there that just... Uh, <clears throat> affected me powerfully, but uh, so thankful uh, to the Lord for his faithfulness to us in these past five years. Well, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles or your uh, electronic devices, perhaps, um, to Genesis chapter 49. Each year we come to this anniversary of the launch of Emmaus Road Church, and I, I, I contemplate our existence. I, I contemplate our endurance. You know, we've we've lasted five years. I'm I'm reminded of a note that I received from a mentor prior to our engaging in this venture. It's what he wrote to me. Those who plant new churches typically find themselves suddenly confronted with intense difficulties, challenges in relation to their spouses, challenge, challenges in relation to their children, challenges in relation to their health, challenges in relation to finances, China, uh, challenges in relation to relationships. Planters regularly discover they are in a battle and the pressures are immense. But this sentence is the one that I, I've kind of uh, marked off and kept it in front of me. The last, this last sentence, he said, planting churches is not for posers. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure that note was intended to encourage me. <laughs> um, it was... Uh, meant to engender, a, I guess, a steely resolve in the face of the obstacles that would come. Um, it was meant to heighten my regard for the, the weight of responsibility that I would be bearing. That's a, that's a good thing. And uh, leadership, um, is, as I've understood it, uh, is designed by God to reveal our weaknesses, and to magnify his strength. And so for all the obstacles we face outside of us, the greatest obstacle is the one that we face inside of us. Church planting, it's not for posers. <laughs> I also knew and understood, getting into this, the church planting analytics, you know, uh, we're just like baseball and football and everything else. The analytics said that m most church plants that fail do so before the end of the first 18 months. There's no biblical guarantees that every church plant will succeed. However, God has emphatically promised that his purpose to establish a company of peoples, a congregation of nations for the sake of his praise among the nations, this purpose, this mission will not fail. That is God's authoritative word to us according to Genesis 
chapters 37 to 50 that we have been lingering in these last several weeks. And it is punctuated, I believe for the sake of our encouragement, on this fifth anniversary of the launch of Emmaus Road Church in our text for today. So I want to invite you to follow along. I'm going to read Genesis chapter 49, the first 28 verses. A little longer text, so bear with me and give Give your attention to the God's word and may the Spirit bring his help to bear upon us. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger. For it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. 
Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you. By the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Mindful this morning of how good you've been, how gracious you have been to us. You have you've been more gracious to us than we deserve. We're so thankful. Feel such gratitude today to you, for you, your mercy, your faithfulness. We're thankful for your word, Lord. It's your word that has begotten faith, birthed faith. It's your word that has um, begotten a church and has established a church and has nourished a church and has uh, sustained a church. And Lord, we are hoping again in your word. This is, a, this is an unusual text you have given to us. We, we obviously need help from you um, in understanding its sense. And, um, and so we pray that by your spirit you might assert your active presence and power among us and uh, communicate yourself to us for the encouragement of our hearts and souls today and for the future, the, the months and years ahead as we would long to be faithful to you and bring honor and glory to you and uh, assert ourselves and give our strength to becoming a people, a company of peoples. Be honored in this time, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, find it essential, at least for my well-being and when I'm reading 
these chapters to keep in mind that Moses wrote these words. He wrote the words that I just read to a, the people of Israel near the end of 40 years, what probably seemed like 40 wasted years in the wilderness. But now it was time under God's authority to move out, move in, take the land, or in Jacob's words of blessing to Joseph, to take dominion of the bounties of the everlasting hills. That's poetic, prophetic Old Testament language for all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples. And now after 40 years of living in total dependence on God, food he provided, presence of his his personhood and revelation of his glory, you, you might conclude, wow, these people, these people must certainly by now be filled with faith. What could possibly cause them to shrink back in fear as they lean into taking the land? Well, as it turns out, the same intimidating giants loomed in front of them, the same well-armed, well-defended strongholds stood in the way of, it's the same one that stood in the way of the generation before them, it still stood in the way today. But now, now after 40 years, they are more mindful of, of another obstacle, a greater, deeper, stronger obstacle, one that they could not avoid, and that is the one within them. When it comes to mission, to becoming a company of peoples, we are, as my mentor noted in his note, in a battle, so to speak. There are surprising and daunting challenges to our marriages and our children and our parenting and our finances and our health and our relationships. These all just seem to be amplified when one moves to the front lines. But the most serious challenge lies within. That is the challenge of the presence of remaining sin. And it was this enemy that cost the descendants of Jacob 40 years. It cost them 40 years and the lives of an entire generation. Their sin, their unbelief, that's why they had been wandering so long. And it was in the face of this enemy, Moses sought to encourage God's people that the mission, the mission would not fail. And so Moses recounts God's purpose and God's promise to Jacob and to his sons. I'm going to work. I'm going I'm to bless you. I'm going to make you fruitful. I'm going to work on you. I'm going to put my engraving tool to use on you. I'm going to hold on to you with all of your flaws and all of your failures. I'm going to hold on to your family with all your dysfunction and sin. And I'm going to transform you. I'm going to transform you into a company of spiritual descendants that will encompass the peoples of every tribe and every language and every nation on earth. Or as Jesus said it, I will build my church. 
And neither your sins, nor the sins of your offspring, nor the sins of your enemies, not even the gates of hell itself will prevail against it. When we uh, first moved to Sioux Falls, I I remember sitting down with a group of young men and uh, listening to them. That was what was remarkable is that they were unusually transparent and honest with me in articulating their their personal struggles. And uh, the conversation went something like, you know, we're sinning. We're sinning. And every day we're sinning. And uh, we're sinning because of Satan. Satan is our problem. And, and so help us to know how to fight Satan. And uh, I listened intently and, 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 and responded, well, Satan is uh, most certainly a, a very real problem. But you know, there's a deeper problem. We don't sin because of Satan. We would sin even if there were no Satan. The reason that we sin is because we are sinners. The real problem to tackle is the presence of ongoing and remaining sin in the life of believers. And since the greatest problem for believers is the presence of remaining sin, You see, the the penalty of sin for believers, that's taken care of. And the power of sin has been broken for believers. But on this side of heaven, it is the presence of remaining sin that becomes a significant obstacle and perhaps the most significant obstacle in the fulfillment of the mission of becoming a harmonious, worshiping community. The the reality of the presence of ongoing and remaining sin in the lives of God's people. But you see, loved ones, the main point of Genesis 37 to 50 is that God is establishing a company of peoples and not even the most serious challenge of all, namely ongoing remaining sin in the lives of his sons and daughters, can prevail against the fulfillment of his mission and purpose. And Moses' aim was to assure his people, and my aim is to assure you people, that the mission will not fail on account of even the presence of remaining sin. And Genesis chapter 49, verses 1 to 23, offers compelling evidence in support of this truth. And perhaps the most encouraging evidence is the discernible transformational process that has taken place in the life of Jacob. If we go back to the the outset of this narrative, the most significant obstacle to Jacob's family becoming a company of peoples is Jacob himself. He is a manipulator. He had been one from his youth. He is the favorite son of his mother, favored, preferred all the way through, a man with virtually no need for sexual self-control on account of four wives, and his persistent, toxic, reproduced preference for one son, one of his sons. 
But now, at the end of his life, rather than emitting only more and more brokenness, Jacob's heart emits blessing. Blessing. Look at verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them. Blessing each. Blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. You know, the, perhaps you understand this. The root meaning of the word blessing or blessed or to bless It is the notion of happiness, right? That's the root. Blessed, happy are the the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed, happy are the pure in heart. Blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When we long for someone's blessing, we long for them to be happy with us. We desire their approval of our choices, of our actions. I want your blessing. When we, we want to know they feel pleasure in us. And that's why when we say or when we sing, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, we're saying, Lord, I feel pleasure in you. My spirit feels joy in what you've done. My heart and soul and Everything within me approves of you. That's why offering and receiving blessing is that's a big deal. It is a big deal. It communicates something profoundly life-giving, approving, to feel pleasure, to feel someone's pleasure in us. <laughs> this is why Genesis 49 Our text is such a remarkable text. In this passage, Jacob does something that we have not seen him do before. He blesses all 12 of his sons. All of them. He never did that before. In prophetic and poetic verse, we hear Jacob address address each of his sons by name. So, So frequently throughout this narrative, it's, well, there's Joseph and then those other guys. Joseph is my son. And then there's those other guys. Poetry is the language of the heart. These are personal words. They are loaded with creativity and thought-filled symbolism. That's what makes it kind of challenging to kind of get your head around this text. Jacob clearly worked on this. (laughs) And it's prophetic. Look at verse 1. Genesis 49.1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you What shall happen? What shall happen to you in the days, in the years, in the generations to come? Now, now in our understanding, uh, Scripture is revelation from God for all of God's people 
for all time. Prophecy, on the other hand, is revelation from God for specific people for a specific time. And, and this kind of revelation, specific, specific for these people, for this circumstance, for this, that has a distinctly, it, it engenders a distinct, encouraging awareness that God is mindful of you. God is mindful of your situation. And so God gives, imparts to Jacob this gracious spiritual gift with which he addresses his sons with remarkable poignancy. It's a significant moment. It's, it's Jacob's greatest hour. Now, you may have noticed as I read the text that not all of these so-called blessings... <laughs> Now, they don't sound much like blessings. Some of them seem more like anti-blessings. Uh, but these blessings, nonetheless, are communicated through a chosen man, a forgiven man, a justified man who is a profoundly changed man, and yet in whom resides the presence of remaining sin. Such is the wonder of justification. That's why the reformers were so reforming. Sinful people, by God's grace, through faith, in union with Christ, are counted righteous. Even though they're clearly not righteous. It's astonishing doctrine. And only a rigid moralist would, would remain blind to the fact that on, on our best days, anybody here, our best days, regenerate people who are trusting Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins are a mixture. We are a mixture of spirit-born virtue one moment and the presence of manifest discouraging presence of sin the next. These prophetic and poetic words of blessing are a powerful exhibit of God's grace in Jacob's life. They are evidence of a developmental process. They reveal that God is still active and Jacob is still growing and though the presence of sin will remain as long as we live in this fallen world, God's purpose and promises will not fail. Now, lest we wrongly conclude that the inevitable and ongoing presence of remaining sin in the lives of believers offers us some license and excuse for taking sin lightly, it is also crucial to note how Jacob's blessings are an expression of the inevitable and ongoing consequences of remaining sin in the lives of believers. According to verse 4, though Reuben, by virtue of being the firstborn culturally, had 
rightful privileges and prerogatives and deserved a place of preeminence and honor, his story had revealed that his character was about as stable as water. According to Genesis 35, verse 22, he had attempted to seize control over the family. He wanted to take over the clan, the tribe, as it were. Tried to do it through a sexual coup. He had slept with his mother's maid, who also happened to be his father's second wife. The coup failed. In Genesis 37, 29 to 30, he had intended, he meant to, to do something good by rescuing Joseph, but you know, he just happened to be absent at the, at the time when the brothers sold Joseph into, to the Ishmaelites. He failed in his attempt. In Genesis 42, 37 to 38, he, he, he proposes an offering of the lives of his own two sons as collateral if Benjamin didn't make it back from Egypt. This, this offer was wisely turned down. Reuben's plans just never seemed to work out. And later, according to Judges 5, 15 to 16, his undealt with trait of unreliability was passed on to the tribe that descended from him. Simeon and Levi. These are men who just could not, would not deal with the, the root, the heart of their unbridled anger. Their violent tempers gave rise to a mass murder. They massacred every male resident in the village of Shechem. Now think of that. That is, that is utterly appalling. If that made the news today, we, it, you know, we would just whew, take your breath away. And the lasting consequence of their sin was that their descendants would be scattered throughout Israel. And since they were joined together, brothers, in their sin, then their tribes would also be joined in their scattering. Zebulun. Zebulun chose to locate himself too close to the pagan community of Sidon. And so even though there were economic advantages to that location, his tribe, his descendants, paid the price for it in terms of the unintended consequence of Spiritual compromise. Same happened to Issachar. He would pursue a life of comfort, a life of ease. It's a temptation that every one of us faces, right? The, the allurement of the easy life. The allurement of the easy life over a life engaged in God's great commission. And the consequence of his, what some might term a wasted life, according to Genesis 49.15, was the enslavement and subjection of his descendants to forced labor. Now, not all of these so-called blessings <laughs> are equally clear. Uh, in Genesis 49.27, Benjamin, the baby of the family, is referred to as a ravenous wolf. <laughs> We're not quite sure what that means, but that is never a positive picture in Scripture to be compared to a ravenous wolf. Morning and evening, he's carving up the spoil from those who are weaker than him. Verse 17, Dan is likened to a snake in the grass alongside the path. 
Never really a positive picture in the scriptures. In verse 20, Asher is serving up delicacies for the rich and the royal. Um, verse 21, Naphtali is running loose. He's on the loose. It's not a Paul Allen description. This is, he's like a wild deer in the mountains. And it, it's hard to know what these things mean, but they don't sound good. So there's three things that should be said regarding these dubious so-called blessings. First, they are an expression of the complexities of sin. They're an expression of the complexities of the sinfulness of sin. On the one hand, sin can be socially reprehensible. It's ugly, outrageous, sick. Reuben, that's sick what you did. Ugh. Or on the other hand, sin can be socially acceptable. I mean, pursuing the good life. What's wrong with serving up delicacies to people of power and influence? trouble is, is that you do that without any discretion or regard for the cost to your own spiritual distinctiveness, and you will pay for it. This, loved ones, is a grace-filled blessing because it is a grace-filled warning to the people Moses led and a grace-filled warning to us. In the name of taking the land, in the name of mission, in the name of reaching the lost, in the, in the name of, of building a community of peoples, in order to win approval, in order to gain an audience, there is the potential of instead becoming just like them. How many of us have ever even paused to consider the possibility that devoting our lives to comfort, to material success, might, might leave us enslaved to sinful compromise? This is blessing. It's a blessing to be warned. Because we're all Reubens and Simeons and Levi's and Zebulun's at heart. Second thing. These blessings confirm again that, that God will not permit anything to prevail against the fulfillment of his purpose and mission. Just take Reuben, for example. The so-called blessing that he would not steward, he would not enjoy his natural right to preeminence and influence that's a good thing. Uh, who would dispute God's goodness and wisdom and mercy in sparing the mission from being led primarily by someone whose instability and unreliability and whose circumstances and character seem to continually be conspiring against him. 
This is a kind expression of God's sovereign grace when providence protects the mission. And, and Reuben. <laughs> it protects Reuben by withholding his deployment. Thirdly, these blessings demonstrate clearly and most fundamentally that the mission of God will prevail and will not fail on account of God's redeeming grace. This is what this exalts and exalts most of all. The fact that Joseph in this long list of blessings it receives the richest longest blessing it shows that even to the end he is still the favorite son of his father Jacob but this blessing to Joseph also accounts for the storyline of Joseph's life Joseph was abundantly fruitful in this poetic language, sending out branches from his well-watered vine, moving out beyond his own walled vineyard, verse 22. This prosperity, however, comes in the context of remarkable affliction and assault. We know his story. He suffered greatly. Verse 23 is a reference to all the slanders and injustices he had to endure throughout his lifetime. But it's an expression of God's redemptive process in his life. Notice the, the, the central word in, in Joseph's blessing. is it, Well, it's neither his, his fruitfulness nor his bitter suffering. Rather, the central word, the heart of it is God's presence and unfailing purposes in his life. Look at Genesis 49, 24, and 25. His bow, that's Joseph's bow, symbolic again. His bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile. <laughs> in the midst of all this pain in his life, he's unmoved and agile. How? Where did this come from? It was made so by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father who will help you. By the Almighty who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above. The, the, the qualities that set Joseph apart were, were not innate to his own character or faithfulness. They were rather qualities. This is what's so encouraging. They were qualities and fruit that flowed to him from God's strength and God's faithfulness. It is remarkable, is it not, that though Joseph had already achieved stunning greatness in Egypt and possessed untold wealth and status and power in abundance, Jacob still blesses him. And that's because the blessings that Joseph needed, the blessings that Joseph needed did not consist in all the Things, all the stuff of Egypt that Egypt could provide. Rather, the blessings that Joseph needed most 
were the same blessings that were first promised to his grandfather, Isaac, and to his great-grandfather, Abraham. Jacob blessed Joseph with the blessing of breast and womb, which represent, obviously, fruitfulness in terms of offspring and children. And then the blessing of the everlasting hills, namely the blessing of the land. Now, one more name we need to give attention to and that is the blessing of Judah if the blessing reserved for Joseph was the longest and the richest then the blessing on Judah was truly the most amazing Jacob blessed Judah with the same the same exaltation that Joseph had seen in his boyhood dream. Listen to verse 8. Jacob says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons, that is, your brothers, shall bow down before you. So, Here's Jacob describing him prophetically in a distinctly royal manner. Majestic, lion-like. Verse 10, he's going to possess the scepter and the the ruler's staff. And he, he will not simply reign over his brothers, nation of Israel. His dominion is going to extend to the peoples, the ethnos, the nations. He will be unrivaled in beauty These dark eyes literally sparkle. And in verse 11, he's going to hitch his donkey to a choice vine. Uh, How do you describe this? It's like using $100 bills to light fires. I mean, he's just going to be so prosperous and rich. Because, you know, you you hitch a donkey to a vine, what's the donkey going to do? He's going to eat the vine. He's going to eat the the branches and the grapes. There's nothing going to be left to it. He's just kind (laughs) of... And and instead of washing his clothing in water like ordinary people, this future king is going to be so rich that he can do his laundry in wine. Now, behind these images of extraordinary prosperity and blessing, there there are also ominous images of power. The wine is described as the blood of grapes and certainly cleansing garments with wine is going to inevitably stain them red. So alongside the promise of prosperity for Judah and his descendants, this image shouts a clear warning of danger to all of Messiah's enemies. They point to the greater Judah, the son, the descendant. They point us forward to Christ, the true lion of Judah, Revelation 5.5. He is the one to whom judgment and rulership truly belong. The one who came to earth to redeem his people. That's why Jesus turned water into abundant wine in his first miracle. He used used jars that were intended for doing the laundry. That's why Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey, as the humble yet powerful king who saves his people. 
Jesus is the one who promised. He's the promised one who of unrivaled beauty to whom belongs the obedience of all the nations. He is the one who is depicted in Revelation riding a white horse, wearing a robe dipped in blood in order to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty by defeating and judging all of his foes. He is the King of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. He is the one who took up our affliction, our oppression, the assaults against us, the sins outside of us, and the sins within us, so that we could now wash our sin-stained garments, not in blood-red wine, but in the blood of the Lamb Himself. And as we wash our garments in His cleansing blood, they come out dazzlingly clean, right? Pure, spotless, sins past, sins present, sins future, pure and spotless as if we had never sinned. Loved ones, the foundation of our assurance that the mission will not fail that there will be a company of peoples, that there will be a spiritual community of all nations, for all nations, is that in Jesus, joined to Jesus, all our sins, past, present, and future, are not counted against us. In Jesus, joined to Jesus, every sin committed against us will be redeemed for our eternal good Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that Jacob saw prophetically and everything that he spoke as blessing to his sons. Jesus is the ground of our assurance that his mission will never fail. Let's pray. So Lord, on this anniversary fifth year of the existence, the launch of Emmaus Road Church, and on this second Sunday of Advent. Thank you, Lord, for directing our attention to you, to your promises, to your purpose and mission, and to our hope and encouragement that the fulfillment of all that you have called us to ultimately is not grounded in us or in our performance though we long to give you everything it is grounded in your power and your faithfulness and your the finished work of a great savior our lord jesus christ in whom we put our hope and whom we turn to for life and salvation in whom we pray, amen.